If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. We've got an amazing conversation with Ben Dubin-Thaler. And Ben is going to be coming on and sharing with us essentially everything you need to know if your organization is thinking about acquiring a mobile unit. Before we go there, I got to share with you, it is early December. We are planners here at Successful Nonprofits, and we've got our act together for webinars for next year. So we have already put our entire webinar schedule for all of 2022 at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. You can go there. You can see if there's a webinar you want to attend. All our webinars are free. Just click sign up. Now, I will also share with you, again, it's the entire schedule. So you know if you're looking now in April, you're probably going to be available. So do it now before you find yourself booked up in April. And now, listeners, I am so excited to be able to introduce Ben Dubin-Thaler to you. And there are so many reasons why I'm excited. First of all, this is the last recording session of the day. We batch record, and this is the last one. And the last one, always the best one. The 9 a.m. recording session, the guest always shows up with a series of bullet points and wants to try to get through every single one, no matter how organic I want this conversation to be. The last one, you know, we, we're just like, okay, we're going to get through this and we're going to have a great time. So this is always the best one. The second reason I'm really excited is because Ben is a longtime podcast listener. And let me share with you how I met Ben. He registered for one of our webinars earlier this year in 2021. And Ben had mentioned, oh, I'm a podcast listener. And I, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I, I pulled up Ben's organization, which is Biobus. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is the coolest thing in the world. I've got to figure out what angle we're going to use to get Ben on the podcast. Because as you know, we don't really profile organizations. We profile big ideas or issues. And so that's one of the reasons I was really excited is we found a great angle. So Biobus is an organization that I'm going to let Ben tell you a lot more about. But essentially, it is an organization that brings a science lab to schools in a bus. 
And Ben is uniquely qualified for this. Got a PhD in biology, a bachelor's degree in physics and math, which, by the way, already means that Ben probably did a lot better on the SATs than I did. But And I know scientists get tired of hearing that, but it's probably true. Interestingly enough, though, Ben started BioBus fresh out of a PhD program and started it as a very young entrepreneurial person. And you see that. You see that in all of its marketing and in all of its programs. And as I said, I'm just really excited about BioBus and the work that they're doing. And I thought, you know, who who could better? Who could better share with us what everyone should be thinking about if your organization is getting a mobile unit than BioBus? Because they're operating buses in... New York City, not the most bus-friendly place in the world, not the easiest place to drive or park, an expensive place to get vehicles fixed. I was like, yeah, we absolutely need to talk about the pros and cons with Ben. So, hey, Ben, welcome to the podcast. Dolph, it's so great to be here. I'm a huge fan of the podcast and just proud to contribute. Well, well, thank you. And again, you're just so uniquely qualified to talk to us about vehicles. But before you do... I know that BioBus has an incredible origin story, and our listeners really need to hear it. I was in New York City, and I was doing my PhD. I kept on bringing people into the lab um, to see what was going on in there. And every single person that I brought in, whether it was the janitor on the floor, whether it was kids that I might play in hockey, whether it was you know my friend's parents, you know it didn't matter. Everybody had the same reaction, which is, how, how come I didn't know that science was this cool? Um, when you see a laser microscope with cells crawling around in real time, um, it's just so much fun and so exciting. And nobody knows what's going on in there. You know, we're, we're cloistered off in our, our ivory tower, you know, and, and, and most people just have no idea. And the BioBus was just a way to create that kind of access that could be scaled, uh, uh, you know, beyond what I could do in my, in my thesis advisor's lab. I, you know, I knew he wasn't going to be too happy if I started trotting thousands of students through the lab uh, every day. That, that's awesome. And I also love the reasons why you founded BioBus. Like you talked about, I saw some videos where you talked about some of the stats and I'm going to get them wrong. So I'm going to rely on you to correct me. But I think it's, I think it's something like um, only 27% of high school graduates um, understand science at a at a twelfth grade level or something like that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Across the board, students in standardized tests are scoring you know twenty five you know twenty only twenty five percent or less of the students are are proficient in science uh, by twelfth grade. And the other thing we know is that you know for lots of different reasons uh, you know there are big disparities in achievement across race so students that identify as latinx or uh, black or african american um, are scoring you know significantly less well and that was the other thing that got me into biobus was seeing those disparities you know in new york city you walk 10 blocks and you go from an affluent neighborhood to a neighborhood that has you know almost no resources and um, that yeah that's a major part of the mission of biobus is to address those educa- science education disparities. And I saw your presentation where you talked about that and you showed the graph and it's stark. Like, but I also like the way you underscored, keep in mind, none of these stats are good. The 27% across the board is also a really bad stat. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Everybody needs help. And I think one of the biggest lessons that I learned from bringing the bus, we've been to over 800 schools and we've had over 300,000 students aboard our, our, now we have two mobile labs. And uh, what I realized is that 
kids want science. They are so excited. They want these opportunities. Uh, so it's not about, you know, desire. It's really, it's really about providing those kinds of opportunities. And again, the mobile lab, it's all about access, right? It's mm -hmm. all, about, all, all about providing that kind of access to those opportunities. So here you are, you're this younger, new PhD scientist, and you're like, I have an idea. I'm going to buy a bus and outfit it as a lab and take it around to schools. Tell us about this. I mean, it was just so crazy. I knew nothing. I, I really knew nothing. You know, I mean, they don't they don't teach you a lot about entrepreneurship in a biology PhD program. <laughs> you know, I went to one seminar early on from uh, actually the Craigslist Foundation used to run these nonprofit boot camps in New York City, um, and so that was a big you know that was a big help for me. And the, the nonprofit community, of course, is just so generous in general in terms of helping people, uh, you know, succeed in that space. But I knew nothing. And uh, the first thing that I did, I made the I, I made the mistake that I'm going to tell all the people listening today not to make, which is the first thing I did is I found a bus and I went and bought it and uh, I just tried to make it work. Um, and uh, boy, <laughs> if I could do it over again, I'd start a little bit differently. But that's what I did. I bought an old 1974 transit bus off of Craigslist and uh, went out to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, picked it up, drove it uh, from Sioux Falls uh, with the, the person who is now my wife. Um, uh, this was not a good recipe for, for success in marriage or relationships in general, but we drove the bus from Sioux Falls uh, to Burning Man first um, and, then, uh, and then to San Francisco. Um, we only broke down once along the way that time, which was, <laughs> which was not, so, not so bad uh, given you know, the number of breakdowns that I'd have with that vehicle, you know, over the next few months after that. Well, real quick, I'm jealous. I think that would be the <laughs> coolest trip ever. So, but I, but I have to also share with you, this is where I'm jealous and I like to be adventurous, but I also am compliance minded over here in the back of my head. I keep wondering, did you have a license to drive a vehicle that size when you picked it up? No, the short answer is no. So at that time, it was registered as an RV. It wasn't registered as a regular commercial vehicle. Um, so in most states, <laughs> it was it was legal for me to drive the vehicle. Um, the other thing is that it's under 26,000 pounds. And that's a magic number. If you're thinking about a, a vehicle, there's a threshold, which is 26,000 pounds, 13 tons. And if you're above that number, there's a whole bunch of Department of Transportation regulatory pieces that kick in. So if you can stay under that 26,000 pound number, um, there's a lot of things that you can do. It makes it easier. Um, I do now have my commercial driver's license and uh, we are fully compliant. And we've always been, I think that's uh, the right thing to say. <laughs> yeah, you might have had to drive around the perimeter of some states in order to stay fully compliant. <laughs> that's right. that's You're right. like, yeah, why are we going around Colorado? Because I need a license. <laughs> I don't have it in there. But but so so now you end up with this bus in San Francisco. And then you had to drive the bus literally diagonally across the continent. That's right. So the reason why I had gone to San Francisco when I was in grad school, my thesis advisor was very, very uh, generous. He would say, okay, finish this set of experiments and then you can take off for a little while. And I would go to California and tour with a choir called Reverend Billy and the Church of Stopped Shopping. It's like an anti-consumerist guerrilla theater group based here in New York City, uh, still active, amazing group. And they would do those tours on these converted vegetable oil powered buses. And so that's why I went back to San Francisco, spent a couple of weeks at a, an anarchist collective called uh, Flower Shop. And uh, they're experts in converting old vehicles into running on vegetable oil. They got me set up on vegetable oil and we made the trip back to New York City. Um, my dad actually joined me on that road trip, which was just amazing. 
amazing adventure. And that's how we got back to New York City on used fryer grease from fried chicken places. And, and uh, that's what I was going to ask you. So where did you get your <laughs> vegetable oil from? So you just pull into like fast food joints? Yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Um, so there's a hierarchy of, of quality of grease. Um, if you're running a, a vegetable oil, uh, a waste vegetable oil uh, fuel system, sushi restaurants tend to be the cleanest. Uh, French fry fryers are, are tend to be some of the dirtier ones. <laughs> but, uh, you know, sometimes you just, you know, beggars can't be choosers. And, you know, we would just go in. we would ask, we weren't the people that were just pirating the grease. Uh, we would, you know, we would go in, we'd ask and we'd tell them that we were, you know, a science education nonprofit. And it was surprising how many people were like, yeah, sure. The grease, grease trap is, you know, out back. Wow. Suck it up. Wow. <laughs> and so this is totally tangential, but I, I'm curious, like how clean in terms of exhaust is vegetable oil grease? Is it pretty clean or? It's pretty clean. Yeah. It's, it's main uh, value from an environmental point of view is that you're using a waste product as opposed to using, you know, virgin fossil fuels. Um, uh, you know, it is a little bit cleaner coming out of the tailpipe, but the, yeah, that the main thing is just not using the, the fossil fuels. Got it. Got it. So now you've got this van, in, sorry, bus in New York and you've got to outfit it as a lab. So that's when the community just stepped up in ways that I couldn't even imagine. Um, I never could have imagined. Uh, first of all, my old department at Columbia, the Columbia Biology Department, just found an old microscope that nobody was using, gave that to me. Um, then Olympus Microscopes, who had I had a relationship with from uh, my PhD, gave us two brand new research-grade microscopes. So we had more, we, uh, the microscopes at that point were already more valuable than the bus itself, um, <laughs> like by far. <laughs> That's awesome. That's really awesome. The insurance on the microscopes is more than the insurance on the bus. 100%, 100%. Yeah, that's right. That's and, right. And so this conversation, of course, begs the question because we want to make sure that people get a sense of what they're walking into if, if their organization becomes a vehicle owner. What was your worst day as a bio bus owner? One of the worst days, and, and you know, there's always going to be some low points. Anybody who owns a vehicle knows that, you know, you know, vehicles can, 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 you know, they can throw you under the bus sometimes. Um, but, um, uh, one of the worst days was, uh, one of the first, the first paying gig that we had was at a school in the Bronx, Frederick Douglass Academy three. And, um, I was trying to start the bus up in the morning. It was a cold December morning. So it was December of 2008 and I couldn't get the bus started. Kept on trying, kept on trying, couldn't get the bus started. So I was like, okay, something's wrong. And I go out to back to the engine compartment, open it up, and I see a flickering light kind of deep inside of the engine compartment. I'm like, what is that? Is there like a light bulb in there? Like I've never noticed that before. And it took me a couple seconds to figure it out. It was a fire. There was a there was a fire inside of my engine compartment. Luckily, uh, you know, I was safety conscious enough that I had a fire extinguisher at the ready put out that fire. Uh, but what was I going to do? Right. There's, there's a hundred high school kids waiting at the school and, uh, there was, there was no way I was going to get there on time. Early on, I had amazing volunteers from, from the scientific community, you know, my, my friends in grad school, uh, primarily. And, um, so the person, uh, uh, who's at the school, um, I, you know, I called him and said, you know, can you stall? Uh, you know, <laughs> what can you do with the kids until I can make it there? Cause I got to fix the bus real quick. Uh, managed to do it. And the incredible thing is uh, it turned out that there was, um, there were people at that, uh, at the school that day from uh, Lehman College's gear up program. And they saw the program once they managed to get the bus there. Finally, 
uh, they saw the program and they said, wow, this is really, really cool and unique. Let's get this to all of our other sites. So it was the big break actually early on that I really needed. Hmm. I, I love that story in part because the day ends with such anxiety and closes with like this sense of elation. Yes, I can still, in, in, in my body, I still feel that, that anxiety of, you know, just like the whole project just slipping through my fingers because <laughs> my starter motor, you know, had a, had a short circuit. One of the ways that I think you and I are probably alike is, and I know this, I often lean toward the, oh, I'm just going to do this and then figure it out. And so like I started a podcast and then, you know, 50 episodes later, I finally figured out how to make the audio sound good. Um, so, and, and I don't mean that as an insult to you, so I apologize. That probably comes out bad, but like I'm not often very enthusiastic. I'm like, I'm jumping in with both feet and then I'm in and I got no choice, but I got to figure it out. So what were some of your big lessons? What were some of the big things that you had to figure out um, both with your first vehicle and I think Biobus too. And by the way, I love the fact that you refer to that as a fleet. I love that. I love that. But I think Biobus too is a newer vehicle. So what were some of the things you learned both with your first vehicle and then your second? Yeah. Some of the things that we really figured out over the years with Biobus 1, the original 1974 transit bus, um, is when we have a class of 32 kids on the bus, um, like how that spacing works. It's a big bus. It's a 40 foot bus. Um, but you know, 32 kids inside of a bus plus, uh, you know, a few of their teachers and, 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 and bio bus scientists, right. It still becomes a tight space. You really got to manage the space just incredibly well. And what we also realized is that we needed to get all those students on there. Cause when we first started out, I was doing crazy stuff like bringing half a class on for you know half a period and then switching them out with the other the other half because we didn't have the bus set up for a full class yet and I just realized how much of a headache that was creating for the school and for the teachers so so that was a big lesson was you know we just got to make it as easy as possible right I mean it's already easy because the bus is just showing up at the doorstep of the school right that's the first step of access for the vehicle but then you know just integrate into the school day you know use the regular schedule right you get all the students in the same class on the on the bus at the same time just make it easy mm -hmm. uh, so make it make it easy and make sure that however you're designing it fits your program what are some of the other big things you learned one of the things that we always really focused on from the very beginning was the re renewable energy aspect of things when I bought the bus, it actually already had solar panels on it, which was amazing. Gary, uh, you know, had already had already added those those features, um, and uh, we continued to upgrade that through the years. And um, you know, what we realized was that, you know, the vehicle itself is just such a right. It's a character in the program, and uh, you know, the solar energy piece of it. When we were running vegetable oil, right, the fact that it was running on vegetable oil, we used to have a wind turbine that we would erect uh, and stand up on the front of the bus. Um, we're working on getting that back going again with like a, a pneumatic powered uh, mast uh, with a wind turbine on it. But um, the vehicle itself is just so charismatic, um, and and just makes the whole experience just fun and exciting and attractive. So, you know, vehicles can really do a lot in that term. That's not something I would have thought of, but I like, I love the way you framed that, that your vehicle itself was a character. Like people came for the vehicle and it sounds like maybe that's one of the lessons. If you're going to have a mobile unit, no matter what you're doing, no matter how bland or plain it might seem, make your vehicle the character. The other thing, you know, that we learned, you asked about what we learned with BioBus 2. I think one of the big lessons that we learned 
we, we, we finally had a budget with Biobus 2. With Biobus 1, it was very, very low budget. I mean, the, the initial vehicle itself cost $15,000. All of the rest of this equipment and materials were donated. Um, and it was just extremely, extremely low budget. With Biobus 2, we actually managed to put together, you know, based on the successes that we had had with Biobus 1, we managed to put together an amazing coalition of funders who were who were really excited to see us take that next step. Um, and that was led by the Simons Foundation and the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. And we worked with some amazing designers. Um, and that's one of the things that, um, you know, if, if you can possibly have the budget, um, you know, in terms of what you were saying about developing the bus into a character, um, you know, having uh, designers work with you, you know, they can really help you hone that vision. But the feel that we were going for was not magic school bus, even though that's a great analogy. And I love magic school bus. I mean, you know, obviously, but um, we were not going for that elementary kind of kid uh, feel, you know, Biobus is, you know, we have 23 regular employees, almost all of us are scientists. Um, you know, the, the, one of our big selling points is like, you know, this is a, a research science lab experience that students are getting, you know, they're using a $75,000 electron microscope on that bus. And so the feeling that we wanted to cultivate was one of sophistication um, while still being approachable. Um, and so that's what we really tried to do with Biobus too. Um, and I think, I think we, I think we got pretty close to that. Hmm, I love that. Now, this also begs the question for me. Okay, so I hear you're working with designers. I hear a $75,000 microscope. So one of my other questions is, what have you learned financially about owning what's really, and, and I think for most organizations, their vehicle is an expensive vehicle, whether it's a $50,000 vehicle or a half million dollar vehicle. But what are some of the things you've learned about financially about owning a really expensive vehicle? I think one of the lessons that I've taken away from the vehicle ownership element is, um, you know, you just have to assume the worst in terms of maintenance. You know, you can go some years where your maintenance bill is a, a low maintenance bill for us, you know, for a vehicle would be, would be $10,000. Um, but then you've got years where that, you know, that maintenance bill that could jump up, you know, if you have major engine trouble or transmission trouble, especially on a big engine, you know, that's expensive to fix. You know, you can get a, you, you can get a year where you're, you're investing, 20, 30 K in your vehicle, right. To keep it going. So, you know, that's, that's, that's a big lesson, right. It's just, you know, have that reserve, right. And just be ready. And just to put it into perspective, when you say investing, it's not like, oh, you're investing in the vehicle looks better or smells better or is better in any way. You're investing just so the vehicle will keep running. Exactly. That's right. Wow. Well, and talk to me about insurance. Like, did you run into anything around insurance that you were, you know, like maybe you'd insured a car before and you're like, oh yeah, I know how to do this. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to call up State Farm and see how much they're going to charge me. So this goes back a little bit to some of the legal questions that we were talking about before. Initially, we were under RV insurance, um, and so that was easy. That's just standard. Um, but you know, as soon as as soon as we started, you know, as soon as we established the nonprofit and started, you know, you know, got serious, um, you know, we had to go to commercial commercial insurer, and it was hard. It took us six months to find somebody who was going to insure it for a price that you know we could any chance afford. It took us a while to find a an insurer, and um, we finally did find somebody and. What the insurers were telling us is, we don't know what this is. You know, we have no idea what 
how to even describe this to our underwriters. You know, there's just no, there's just no frame of reference. I think that might be a little easier these days. I'm not hundred percent sure about that. And I certainly would go about it differently because knowing what I know now, I knew nothing then. Knowing what I know now, what I'd, do, what I'd say is like, look, you insure food trucks, right? We're not that different from a food truck, right? I'd find comparable, I'd find comparable businesses either in yeah. New York City or the state, right? And, and to try to convince them, yeah. right? But it was tough. But once we got that first policy and, you know, didn't cause any, you know, major, didn't have any major losses. Uh, and we've never, we've never had a, we've never had a loss. And we've had some really very, we've had some very, very minor things that were like just under our deductible, you know, little, you know, tiny, tiny things, but we, you know, we're, we're, we're serious about safety. And the other thing I would say is that with insurance, it's a totally different ball game. If you have people on the bus while the vehicle is moving, our policies are very explicit we cannot have students on the bus while the vehicle is moving because that's just a whole nother level of liability. And so can your staff be, other than the driver, can your staff be on the bus or do they have to follow on the subway or how do they get there? Our staff can be on the bus. Yes, yes, our our employees can be, yeah. Okay, so you learned you needed like 10 to 30 grand per vehicle for maintenance, that especially your initial insurance could be really difficult because most insurers have never insured you or a mobile medical unit or, or, you know, a food truck or anything like that. Um, Was there anything else from a legal standpoint or a financial standpoint that you were like, I was not expecting this? Well, depreciation is just a thing that I didn't really know anything about. Again, I knew nothing, but uh, I didn't know anything about depreciation. You know, anybody who owns a building knows this, but you know, when you have any major equipment, right. And uh, uh, you know, a $500,000 vehicle, right. Is, is, is no different, right. You know, and your depreciation, you're depreciating that on a, let's say an eight or 10 year basis, right. That's a big chunk of change every year that, you know, is going to show up on your, yeah. on your books as an expense. So See, yeah. And that's what I was going to say. At least a building is depreciated over like 27 and a half years vehicle i don't know i don't know what what uh what number of years microscopes are depreciated on but i do know most vehicles are five to ten that's right that's right wow yeah and i'll share with you you know i I started life as a social worker and i remember the first time i learned about depreciation i was like this is a raw deal we have to go raise the money for for non-cash but then i realized oh yeah you know when the boiler goes and we have to replace the boiler we're going to be glad we have that money but you know i had to I had to live through that to understand why i appreciated depreciation yes i love that yes i do also now appreciate depreciation so just as an aside um do you know roughly the schedule on which microscopes are depreciated this is a totally inane question yeah. but oh yeah um, oh yeah 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 no 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 i mean I, as a as a founder who 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 definitely is too involved in the finances of my organization i can i can answer all of these questions for you i'm working on that uh, <laughs> i know you have a podcast i need to listen to <laughs> to educate myself around that and my staff um, but uh, yeah. micro, microscopes 5 years and and our vehicles are are are, are 10 Wow, so a microscope of five years, $75,000 microscope, you're depreciating like 15 grand a year. Mm-hmm. Wow, oh my gosh, wow, okay. Okay, so you learned you had to deal with, with depreciation as well. Did you ever run into any kind of registration issues or like police that don't understand <laughs> how you're allowed to park, et cetera? You know, we've just never had any of those issues. The only time that we got close, um, and uh, I'm going to start this story out by saying I love Texas. Spent a lot of time in Texas. I spent a lot of time in Austin. I've spent a lot of time in Houston. Um, 
Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, you know, uh, I did a lot of research there. Um, I just got to jump in real quick, and I know I'm going to get some hate. I know I'm going to get some hate from Texas. <laughs> Austin's not Texas. Like, <laughs> like Atlanta's <laughs> yeah, not okay. Georgia. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All I'm going to say is that we were driving, uh, we did an amazing tour to the American Society for Cell Biology. The American Society for Cell Biology is my professional society. And uh, they rotate their conferences um, between Philly, D.C., San Diego, and uh, and Denver. At least they used to. Um, and um, we were heading out to Denver to the to their conference in Denver. I mean, and what a what an amazing trip that was. Um, when we um, when we were on our way back, we were looping back through Texas because uh, we had some uh, partners at San, in San Antonio and, as I mentioned, uh, in, in Houston that we wanted to uh, stop by and um, and uh, do some programs with. Within 10 minutes after crossing the border through Texas, we got pulled over by a, by a state trooper. And it was fine, though. Yeah, we got a stern, we got a stern talking to. He was worried about, about the type of registration we had and, um, and whether we were allowed to have markings on the side of the bus of a certain kind. And, uh, you know, there's, there's just a lot, of, a, a lot of strict requirements for commercial vehicles in terms of, you know, you got to have your DOT number and you got to have mm-hmm. your address. And he was, you know, really going through that with a fine tooth comb. But, um, but in wow. the end, he, was, he, let us, he, he led us on our way and we made it to, to San Antonio. Wow, that's incredible. Um, I I love that story, and I will share with you. I was half expecting you to say the trooper was like, you know, you're not allowed to have solar panels on the roof of your vehicle in Texas. I was, because, you know, it's an oil state, and they're really proud of that, and they're really defensive about that. So I was expecting them to be like, "Um, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to turn back around. (laughs) So I have to say I've loved this conversation, and I feel like never having been with an organization that has a vehicle. I feel like I've learned a lot if I ever was going to be with one that was going to have a vehicle. So thank you. This has been so helpful. But you know there's an off-the-map question coming. And I said to you that, you know, I was going to wait for the muse, and I was thinking about something around the instruments behind you. But I got one way, way better than that, Ben. (laughs) So you have done one of the things that is on my bucket list. And not only that, you have done it in a way that I would love to do, and I never will, which is, buy a bus that's been converted into an RV and then actually go to Burning Man. That is that is the most epic way to do it. But Burning Man, what was your favorite thing about Burning Man? Oh, wow. You know, that's a great question. And I was just talking to my kids about Burning Man. And, and you know, of course, they they want to go. I mean, oh, hold on, hold like, on. How old are your kids that you're talking to them about Burning, about Burning oh, well, Man? Well, they're five and eight. Um, and, uh, you know, what I, what I told about Burning Man is that you get to dress up in costumes and, you know, run around and, 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 you know, play make-believe all day. And then there's just amazing art all across the desert. And, you know, so who doesn't, who doesn't want to take part in that, especially when you're five and eight, um, at the risk of, of possibly making you even more jealous of this adventure, Dolph, when I was in Burning Man, um, we were, we were camping with the temple crew and this is the the group of amazing people that actually build the mm-hmm. temple mm-hmm. Um, just i've seen the videos i've never seen mm-hmm. it in real life uh-huh it's a beautiful beautiful structure um i mean it always is every year and then they burn it at the end of the festival so every year it's new but every year it's just just amazing david best and his crew had built it that 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 year and we were camping with them and they have i mean so you know about the art cars Mm-hmm. at Burning Man. So they have one of the best art cars, which is a double-decker bus with a slide on the side. 
and it's uh, it's manual transmission also, which is uh, my my vehicles are automatic. So when I was camping with them, you know, I, I had my commercial driver's license, and uh, you know, the, the the fellow that usually drives the the temple bus around all night, you know, for for everybody to have fun on, with you know, said, hey, uh, I kind of want a night off where you drive the temple bus. <laughs> And so that was, no. that was, that was one of the highlights for sure was getting to, uh, you know, I had to stay sober of course, but you know, getting to drive the temple bus uh, uh, around the playa that year was just, just amazing. One of my dear friends from Delaware attended Burning Man virtually last year. Um, and so I'm going to have to have him be like, look, you got to listen to just the last five minutes of this podcast. Cause it's also on his, and it's funny, it was not on his bucket list and you know, he retired and he's like, Oh, I'm just going to watch this online. And now it's on his, it's been on my bucket list for quite some time, but it's on his as well. Um, so I'm jealous, but what a great, great experience. Well, Ben, thank you so much for coming on and listeners. Let me share with you all the ways you can connect with Ben. First of all, you can go to biobus.org. If you're in the city, if you're in New York, you can sign up for their programs. That's you or your kids can sign up. So make sure you go to biobus.org. You can also check out their annual report there. Now, if you are a mobile lab organization and you're looking for a national group to be a part of, you can also go to mobilelabcoalition.com. And they have an annual conference. Obviously, they've got other offerings as well. Make sure you check them out. Now, if you're thinking, if you're like, this is a great idea, we could we could have something like this in our town. And you're like, oh, now I want to start a mobile lab. Well, here's the good news. Ben and his team have put together essentially a Google Doc on how to scope out your mobile lab. It's just questions you should be thinking about. And as a lot of the things we talked about, insurance, licensure, can you cover the repairs, et cetera? Do you know what you're going to use it for and how you're going to outfit it? But I will share with you that Ben shared the document with me, said we could post a link to it, our show notes, so we will. But it's also really worthwhile to reach out to them. Now, because they're a small team, you know, but Ben said they've got you know, about 20 employees, which I know for some nonprofits are like, I wish I had 20 employees, but that's a pretty lean team for the work that they're doing. And because of that, they do need to charge for consulting when they help another organization create their own bio lab or mobile lab, but um, know that they will always talk to you and just kind of help you figure it out at first before you know whether or not you want to move that forward. Hey, Ben, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Dolph. All right, listeners, I threw out a few URLs there, biobus.org, mobilelabcoalition.com. And then I did not throw out the Google Doc URL because, you know, that always looks like gobbledygook. But we're going to post all of that in our show notes at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Now, this is the point of the show that I normally like to say, hey, if you enjoyed this episode, if you got something from it, check out these other two. But, you know, this is our first episode on talking about vehicles. So, all right, looks like this time around, I don't have an exact, but there's a couple ones that I do think you should be thinking about. One is episode 178 with Paul Wolf, and it's your nonprofit guide to buying, renting, and moving. And the reason is there's a lot of similarities. Whether you're talking about buying or renting a new space, or you're talking about buying or leasing a vehicle you're going to use in your programs, there's a lot of the same things that you want to be thinking about. The other, and we chose this one because it's a little bit outside the box, which is 
episode 134, broadcast with your own podcast with Matthew Passy. I really do believe that every nonprofit on the planet should have their own podcast. It is the, the financial barrier to entry is not high. And I have to tell you, A, you're going to have a great time. B, you're going to be building your tribe and your people and finding who you really sync with. It's a great thing to do. So listeners, that is our show for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And you know, the lawyers, they say I'm going to like have to be thrown off a cliff if I don't tell you this. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney. And by the way, I don't really view that as admitting a deficiency. It's just a fact. I'm not an accountant or an attorney. And neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice, which is not surprising because I'm not an accountant or attorney. And, you know, we talked about some things in this show, but I want you to be really clear that this show is for informational purposes only. Don't rely on anything we said as tax, legal, or accounting advice, especially legal advice when it comes to mobile units. If you're thinking about something like this in your organization, please, please reach out to qualified professionals. And I mean not just an accountant and a lawyer, but you probably want to talk to someone who knows a lot about vehicles as well. So reach out to qualified professionals. Get their help. Get their advice. If you're not sure who to reach out to, hey, give me a call or send me an email. If I know someone in your region, I'm happy to make an intro.